Welcome back to Summer Reading with the Deals, Season 1. This is Episode 5 proper, 6 total. Today, discussing Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner, we are going to just contemplate the title. And we're going to see how long we can talk about it. Um, it's just two words. Uh, but One word. One word repeated. Um, but we're going to talk about the title and the background of the title and the application of the title to the story. We'll talk about who says this. You know, who who, who chose this title for the novel? Is it chosen by Faulkner himself? Is it is it chosen by one of the characters? Um, for example, like, To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, well, um, Atticus Finch tells Scout and Jim it's a sin to kill a mockingbird. And so that's a phrase within the novel spoken by Atticus, but I think chosen by Scout since she's the narrator of the novel of that novel. So um, who, who chose the title Absalom Absalom? Um, we'll talk about the original title, which I've alluded to many times already in this podcast, The Dark House. Um, but there's so much to say about it. Um, I guess the first thing to, to say is, well, you know, why didn't we do this first before we talked about all the characters? Well, I, I think the title really gives away everything about the novel. I mean, it's in, in some respects. <laughs> uh, in between the original title, The Dark House, and the official title, Absalom, Absalom, I think that pretty much explains everything uh, succinctly. But as we're going to discuss in detail... Um, the analysis of this title, I think he yields a lot, and I think we will yield some of the crop, um, but there's so much more to glean from this title than we could probably accomplish in however long we're going to talk about it. So uh, feel free to just ruminate on this title and let us know what you think the title means. Um, so uh, as we get started here, Absalom, 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 comma, Absalom, exclamation point. Whitney, what was your first... So take us back to... You saw this on the syllabus. You had read some William Faulkner already in, in uh, Dr. McAlexander's 20th Century American Modernism class. Uh, but when you saw Absalom, Absalom for the first time, what were your thoughts on it before you opened the book? What did you think about the title? Do you remember... Like, you know, be, being impressed by the title in some way, did it make an impression before you read the novel? I think you're crediting me with a, a really good memory that my memory can't live up to your memory. I know, but... Um, however, um, I, I think I remember wondering as I was reading the book for a long time, or, you know, a really a relatively long time, why is this the title? <laughs> just waiting to figure it out. Um, and then, you know, I, at that point in my life, like I was relatively new to reading the Bible. I've been reading it for a few years, but um, was still really getting my bearings in it and hadn't made a, a like trek through the whole Bible. So I, I think I did some special research and reading to like bone up on the Absalom and David story in the Bible. Mm -hmm. I do remember specifically in class one day, the professor, Dr. McAlexander, asking, 
you know, something about like the biblical illusion of the title and it was just like crickets and I was very kind of quiet and had to brace myself to speak up in class. But when I finally did and explained the story of Absalom, everyone was looking at me like, Whoa, wow. Okay. You know, I mean, I think it's funny because to read literature, even pretty late in the game literature, like Faulkner, you know, this is like 20th century literature, um, conversance with scripture is really helpful and it was not at all taken for granted that people would try to have any kind of like knowledge or expertise on scripture going into these literature classes but anyway all that to say I think that it took a long time for Faulkner's reasoning for choosing this title to make a ton of sense for me but it is a striking title and how emotive it is with the exclamation point and the repetition. Yeah. You know, it, it really, um, I, I think there aren't that many titles that have that kind of punctuation in them anyway. It's unusual. And then to have it be like this cre de coeur, you know, rather than just like mm -hmm. sort of a kind of calm meditative feel. Does that mean cry of the heart? Yeah. For those of you like myself that don't speak French, I just... I don't know. either. I just... I can throw in a smattering of phrases here and there, I guess. I like that. Um, it, that you would pick a title, like you said, that's a cry of the heart. It, it, it does have that emphatic nature that I think is captured in the very first pages as you get to know Rosa Coldfield. I mean, you only have to get about three or four pages into this novel, and you're like, Absalom, Absalom. Heck, yeah, that makes sense now. Like, you don't have to know any biblical knowledge to to have a sense of, okay, I don't know why it's, na it's named that yet, but I already feel like that title is emphatic enough to capture the, 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 just the, the unyielding tone of Rosa Coldfield. If you are to look up the, the source of the title, like those words specifically, it's this larger exclamation of David, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, Absalom, just this anguished cry when his son is dead. And so the, the missing words, I mean, what if this title had been Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, which it could have been. Yeah. But those words are left out, and you're left to like kind of discover for yourself that sonship is the kind of like central agony of the book of Thomas Upton and of maybe Quentin too. I don't know, you know, like this idea of being a son and under the authority of a father, and how just like devastating that is. It's like vital to the book. And I think that the, you know, we're, I know it's only two words, but there's just so much to say about this title and we're just we're just now starting to skim the surface it's from the bible it's from second samuel i believe it's second samuel 18 when david says it but the story covers second samuel chapters 13 through 18 which are about uh, absalom who is one of david's sons and then absalom has a sister named tamar it says absalom david's son had a this is 2 Samuel 13, verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. 
And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Now, that's just the first two verses of chapter 13, but in those first two verses, you already feel the deep connection to Quentin Compson. That Quentin somehow has a connection to the Amnon and Tamar uh they're, they're half-brother and sister because Absalom and Tamar are full brother-sister and then Amnon is... is the, you know, David's all their fathers, but, but Amnon and, and Absalom have separate mothers. And so here they are, they're princes, right? They're, they're, they're sons of the king. And um, Amnon de- develops a desire for his sister that, you know, we would use the word incestuous. Um, but, but, I mean... Says she's, it says she's beautiful, um, but at the same time, there's this sense of, in Israel, it's clear that incest is wrong. And so Amnon knows his desire is wrongful, but he can't help himself in a way. I think he just, he's, he's so driven by his desire that his, his, um, his moral compass is just off. Like, he, he can't. He can't have the self-control to say that's not. I don't get that one. Like I don't, I don't get to play with that one. Like that one's that one's not for me to enjoy. It's like because she's off limits and he can't see a way he can ever have her. That's the draw. Yeah, maybe you know, like the off limits nature of it, which I think to some degree is like the Quentin situation with Caddy too. Like yeah. the one woman who would ever like have a fascination for him is the one woman who's like completely off limits. And so, so as we get into this story, you know, the first part of the story is King David is the King of Israel that, you know, we got to establish that. Then he has multiple wives with whom he has children. And of course the most foolish thing a King can do is have multiple wives because then you get into the tricky who gets primogenitor, who gets to inherit the kingdom. Well, this is all happening on the backs of David getting with Bathsheba, who is Uriah's wife. And so he conceives a child with her. The child is born and dies. And then he conceives another child, and that child is Solomon. And so Solomon ends up being David's heir. Uh, but he's younger than than uh, Absalom and and Amnon, and so th- the the sequence of this happening is in some ways what you might call um, the 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 reaping what you sow of David's sin of not only committing adultery with with your um, with Bathsheba but also having Uriah killed in battle because see David's the you know, he's the commander-in-chief, he's the king. So he orders Uriah's line to go forward in battle, and then all of the other soldiers in that squadron pull back, and Uriah is just destroyed in battle by himself. And so so he does all that, and then the prophet Nathan is explaining, am I right, Nathan or Nehemiah? Is it Nathan, Nathan? Yeah. Nathan. It's Nathan. Um, Nathan... Um, just describes this scenario of this person doing this 
it basically is asking what David has done. And then he's like, well, David, what would you do with this guy? And he's like, well, I'd put him to death. And he's like, you're the, this man. And, and so I back it up beyond Ab- Absalom and Amnon and Tamar because I think this is all part of the story. So David's, David's actions have bad consequences because he's going against the will of God. And so here is the next level of consequences. So not only does the child that he conceives with Bathsheba die, but then once he has Solomon, th- then this next level of, of um, you know, like I said, bad consequences comes forward because his son Amnon decides, you know what, my half-sister Tamar, she's just too pretty, and I'm just going to have to have her. So what he does is he figures out a way to fake an illness where he can get her to serve him food to recover from an illness and in so doing, he gets everyone else out of the room, and he violates her. He rapes her. And so all of this happens in chapter 13 of Second Samuel. And, and then um, it says in verse 21, when King David heard all of these things, he was very angry. Now, you know, I, I don't know what I would do in David's situation. I, I, I literally cannot fathom being in David's situation because I only have one wife, and I just, I just don't see myself being in this situation. But I can understand his anger, but the problem is Absalom does not understand why David doesn't act. He only emotes. And Absalom is like, well, that's my sister. I know it's my dad's daughter, but it's my sister. And so he devises a way to, to, to kill Amnon and, and take revenge. And so basically they get him drunk, and then he gets the, the servants to kill him. And, um, and so that happens. And, and then that basically sets off not necessarily a war between Absalom and David. It's but a civil, I would call it yeah, a civil yeah, war, yeah. appropriately enough for this book. I mean, it's Israel fighting Israel. It's, it's like a party of Israel that's... Yeah, uh, yeah. Basically, Absalom wins over some of the Israelites to his side yes. um, by just putting himself forward as a better candidate to be the king than David. And I think he he has a, to some degree, like a legitimate claim to that because David has shown himself to be irresponsible or passive in several different ways, like fairly recently. Yeah. So I would call it a civil war. And one of the ways uh, Absalom gains those forces to his side, he stands outside the palace in Jerusalem and he says, this is in chapter 15, verse 4, then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. She's like, I'm out here, available, ready to actually govern. Yeah. If I think it felt like David, by contrast, was like shut up in his palace with yeah. his many wives and distractions. Like we know when he took Bathsheba for his wife, he wasn't out at war like a king was really supposed to be right. at that time. He was just like at home chilling, like lusting after women you know, who were bathing on the adjoining rooftops. Like, the sense that David had become kind of, like, overly 
I guess said passive or overly, you know, kind of like uninvolved. Like, yeah, or like non-confrontational can. Yeah. Um, and so it says in verse 6, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And so then, like we said, it, it turns into a civil war. And uh, basically, by, by, by chapter 18, Absalom is in the battle of, I think it's called the Ephraim Wood. Let me double check that. Uh, the Wood of Ephraim. Uh, and so he's uh, riding through the woods, and he gets his hair caught in the tree. And so um, uh, David's you know men come and get him, and it says, as he was riding through the woods on his mule, this is this from Wikipedia, uh, as he's riding through the woods on his mule, he was caught by the long locks of his hair under the spreading branches of a large tree. Unable to free himself, he remained suspended. His mule had escaped. One of David's servants brought his, this intelligence to General Joab, who gave the order that Absalom be put to death, and the royal troops disengage immediately thereafter. So all that happens in chapter 18, and chapter 18 ends um, with, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And so, um, long story short, it only took us about, whatever, 12 minutes to tell, um, that's, that's the context for the title for this novel from the Bible, from the Old Testament. But it's amazing how applicable this story is to the story of Absalom, Absalom, the novel, because you've got these two brothers. And there is an element of Charles is, is saying, I'm going to violate Judith because I know I have mixed race blood and that's you know like we've been saying in in antebellum south and civil war south that's just the 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 line you do not cross and so here here is this violation that he's threatening and and sure enough henry kills charles to 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 keep him from raping judas so, so to speak um and then, uh, you know, Thomas Sutpen obviously would be the David in this situation. And to some, to some degree, I think it's a really fitting metaphor. I mean, I think, I think that the, the dynamic between David, um, Absalom, Amnon, and Tamar is, is, is very powerfully analogous to Thomas Sutpen with um, Charles, Charles Bond, Henry Sutpen, and Judas Sutpen. I think it's also maybe worth throwing in that David, a, a lot of his troubles came from him, him having multiple wives, as you as you mentioned. I think yeah. God had said that kings should not have multiple wives, and David has ignored that advice because culturally it was normal at that time to have multiple wives if mm-hmm. you could afford it. Um, he he comes to a lot of grief from having multiple wives and favoring one wife over another, kind of rejecting one wife and one set of offspring for another without like a lot of justification other than just his own desire. Thomas Suppen does the same thing, right? He rejects one wife and one child and and privileges another and Mm. it causes him a lot of grief. So on that level, another, just another connection. Yeah. And this, this is kind of a sidebar, but uh, David is known as a man after God's own heart. And yes, he did sin in, in a very um, flagrant way, uh, but he still had a deep love and desire for the Lord of Israel. 
Um, and he always repented, yeah. which I think is really the key. Whereas, look at how resistant Sepin is to repenting. Well, now that's where I was going with this is David is a man after God's own heart. I would posit that Thomas Sutpin is a man after Satan's own heart. Um, he's not worshiping Satan. He's not a Satanist, but Rosa Caulfield keeps calling him a demon, a devil. And He and, worships pride. Mm-hmm. He worships power. Those are Satan's Calling value parts. system, yeah. you know. Yeah, those yeah. are his enticements. And um, and so when you think about Thomas Sutpen as, as David, well, it, the, the kingliness certainly applies, and, and the multiple wives with multiple children who ultimately cross paths, that, that, that applies. I guess you could, in a way, you know, if you want to go with my, like, Thomas Sutton is the antebellum South, and Henry is the, is the Confederacy, and Bond is the war itself. Um, they had, you know, the, the antebellum South did not want to stop, but yet the, the Confederacy, this, this, this desire of the states to go to war was in direct conflict with keeping the status quo. And so I think there was this element of the antebellum South wanted to just keep going into into perpetuity, whereas the, 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 the bellicose nature of this, the, the Confederacy was, let's win the war conclusively so that our antebellum ways can go into, into the future un, unheeded and un, uninterrupted and, and, um, and unchanged. And, you know, America has often thought of itself as being a new Jerusalem that goes back to mm-hmm. the pilgrims. Um, it's, you know, just like a, a kind of a long-standing, like we're going to establish a new Israel. It's kind of a long-standing American go- dream or goal. Um, in this story of Absalom, you see Israel being divided and going through a civil war. Um, and so there's something that's kind of fitting on that level. And also, Israel had a particularly, per, sorry, particularly strong emphasis on of how maybe you could call it avoiding miscegenation and it wasn't on True. racial lines because anyone could come and join Israel if they were willing to worship the God of Israel and kind of take on the like law of Israel but you Israelites weren't supposed to marry non-Israelites unless those right. non-Israelites had you know converted fully into the faith of Israel which was rare um, because avoiding that kind of like outside marriage kept them from worshiping other gods or like defecting from the faith. So I even see a connection there because you've got, you know, both it's just really incest at play in the story of Tamar and Absalom and Amnon, but it's like incest and miscegenation at play in Absalom, Absalom. Um, I read an article that was basically suggesting the, the, interesting similarities and differences between incest and miscegenation as taboos because they're basically taboos at opposite extremes of each other. They're both about blood. The taboo of incest says our blood is too alike, too similar. Therefore, this is off limits. Miscegenation says our blood is too different. Therefore, this is off limits. But ironically, there's something a little similar in them because the more miscegenation occurs, the more the blood is going to become some more and more similar. And yeah. so, um, and the article was making the point that in the actual South as it was lived, just like in the Sutton family, 
there was a ton of miscegenation going on and oftentimes incest too, because what would happen is a slave owner would sleep with his slaves. The slave owner's son would sleep with the slaves. Like the slave Mm -hmm. women were considered just sort of like property that could be used for sexual purposes. And these mulatto siblings would be brought up alongside the white kind of legitimate siblings, but not acknowledged as siblings. But it was an unspoken truth that everyone actually understood was true. There was all this ambiguity between incest and miscegenation in practice, even though they seem like polar opposites. And, and Dilsey within the novel is, is a great example of the Sutpins. I think, all know that she's... Oh, Clyde. Sorry, yeah. sorry, Clyde. Clyde Dilsey's You and I have been in, talking about Dilsey all day. Dilsey's in The Sound of Fury. <laughs> um, but, and we will talk about The Sound of the Fury in just a second, uh, because I want to talk about just Faulkner's titles, period. Um, but in terms of uh, Clyde, she, she is acknowledged by the Sutpins as Thomas Sutpins' daughter, but is not, um, you know, certainly it's not given equal footing, and I would say is not even really given familial footing. She, she's like a convert to Israel as opposed to someone that's actually from the seed of Abraham. Um, and, and so, um, you know, that, just like that's going on in ancient Israel, I think that that's going on in, in the antebellum south as well. This, this You're never going to be a first-class citizen if you're not from the lineage of, you know, the, 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 the purity of the race. Thinking of whiteness as like the, the holy chosen lineage. Yeah. Whereas ironically, you know, slave culture turned that on its head and said, no, the slaves are the mm-hmm. new Israel because mm-hmm. look at how Israel was enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Like we're the ones who can relate to the, yeah. the Israelites. We're the ones who are oppressed and persecuted. So, you know, I think the biblical story of Israel is so broad and complex and they go through so many like phases and experiences that it is just, it's, it's relatable for almost any people group in any situation. And it's, um, it can be co-opted by any group. Um, I think that's, that's, you know, it's meant to be relatable. Like you're supposed to relate to Israel, whether you're, you know, the king of kings, or whether you're the, the most abased slave, um, because there's hope in the redemption of God because of the nation of Israel. And so this idea of, you know, the, the Civil War, uh, and we mentioned this on several of our episodes, you know, oh, well, this is proof that God wanted us to lose the war, that, that, that God took a side in the Civil War, and that's why the South lost. And I Maybe, yes. I can't say conclusively. I can only say that God's permissive will is that the, the, the Union won and the North, you know, the North won and, and, and the United States is still a country today because of that. Now, you could say that that's God's directive will or not, but I think, obviously, you, could, you would have to admit, yes, it was God's permissive will that that was the outcome. Now, I've been thinking a lot about what Winnie was just saying because... I think using an explicitly biblical allusion in the title to this story helps us think about the Civil War from the point of view of the people that fought it, the people that were in the aftermath of it. They didn't just think of it as some war between the states or some, you know, some sort of kind of like legal battle that, that, that turned violent. 
it was it was a spiritual battle, um, and I think that's why it still rages in in some elements of our culture. You know, as as we see, like uh, you know, a Black Lives Matter uh, uh, ups upsurge right now in twenty twenty. It's not like Black Lives Matter was not a, a a trending topic or a movement in 2019, but it just it just took a huge uptick in you know in the wake of several young black men and women's deaths, particularly George Floyd. But but here we still are 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 wrestling with the concept of race, and I bring that up because I think this title is so much about the brotherhood of America. Absalom, Absalom. There's this sense of some something in David's house killed something else in David's house. And David is, he went from being angry to being brokenhearted. And those are two very different emotions. Um, and I don't think you can really go from one to the other quickly. I think that, you know, when you think about the... Um, you know, the five stages of grief, it's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. It's, it, you can't go straight from anger to depression. You got to go through bargaining. And, and maybe we're in the bargaining phase of, of America right now. You know, uh, I mean, maybe to some extent we're in the anger phase and some, some extent we're in the depression phase. But I think, I think, you know, this system that we've had of multiracial ethnicities in this country for 400 years is it's not singular in the world, but it's so rare because Whitney and I were talking about the concept of if you live in Iceland, you are Icelandic. There's not a sense of races within Iceland. There's a sense of Icelanders in Iceland. There's Icelanders and their visitors. <laughs> and, and America does not have that feel even now. And, and I don't think it even did back then because it was, it was an un, it was an unfinished country, you know. It, it was a country that that was not um, historical yet. It was being, it was becoming history. And and this novel is about history, but it's about, I think, in some ways, codifying it as history and not just leaving it as memory. Like Rosa Coldfield is is giving her memories, which are being codified into history by by Quentin, and. I think that this title is so powerful because, well, in many ways, it's got many reasons that it's powerful, but one of those is, like I said, it, it, it alludes to this this half-brother with half-brother. It's like, we are all Americans, but certainly in the, you know, the antebellum South, there was not a sense of uh, black Americans were Americans. They were property of white Americans unless they were freed slaves. And so there was this sense of you had to have the ticket into just like we were talking about the, 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 the people of Israel, you had to have been brought into the faith, so to speak. And, and it's such a commercial, you know, such, such a monetary concept for us because people were bought and sold instead of selling themselves into slavery, which is what happens really a lot of slavery in, in the world is, is you, you sell yourself into slavery, like you, you owe a debt to someone and you, you're, you're their servant until you pay it off. And, you know, this idea of Absalom taking justice into his own hands and killing Amnon, 
It's like, well, is that the Union killing the Confederacy? Is it the Confederacy killing the antebellum South? Is it um, freedom killing slavery? You know, there are a lot of different ways you can interpret this, this biblical story through the lens of the Civil War. And I think that's where it meets uh, Absalom, Absalom, the novel, is it, it just is such a rich comparison. Now, I thought about the title being Absalom, Absalom, and of course on our terrible book covers, um, which by the way, we've already talked about how great the, the top half of the book cover is, but it, it's just, it's got too much information on it visually. Like it, it's just, it's too much to look at and it's, it's kind of broken in three, like the Blink-182 video for always, if you're, if you're listening, Brendan Simich. But this element of Absalom, Absalom in italics on the title. It looks, I mean, it looks handwritten. I think that's partly why it looks, you know, slanted. But it feels as though the title is meant to be italicized, not in MLA format, so to speak, but that it's an illusion or that it's this, you know, there are all these sections of the novel that are in italics and that they're, are they thoughts? Are they uh, the memories of someone's words versus hearing them in the, in the moment? You know, it's sometimes it's hard to determine, but let's talk about the slanting of the title, Whitney. Why do you think it looks so stylized? Because it looks like that on the first edition too. It's, it's, it's you know, italics title as opposed to plain script title. Is it? So it's like a script, you're saying, like a handwriting script or a, a yeah, cursive script yeah, on, the, on the first, first edition? edition. Yeah. Okay. I wonder how much say Faulkner had in the first edition. I'd love to know. Because I, I did, <laughs> I read his brother's autobiography and it was saying that, you know, Faulkner loved to draw and, and paint and stuff. And he would like make suggestions to his publisher and say, I'd, I think this would make a good cover. And sometimes they'd just be like, yeah, no. And just, they just would like dismiss him out of hand. But um anyway all that to say uh the script so presuming someone along the way made a really deliberate decision right to say like let's make this like a handwriting script like a kind of a and even the the book we have it looks like old parchment paper on the bottom with like it looks like like you can imagine thomas subpin writing a letter home from the civil war and it's got absalom absalom written on it like this or something interesting that you mentioned letter there (laughs) but yeah, I mean, I do think that, like, part of the reason for the title being a biblical illusion, I mean, it's obviously a pretty fitting biblical illusion. I think it, he might have even gotten the idea for it partly from that story of, you know, right. Absalom. And, yeah, he may have filled in his blanks with... Yeah, just gotten a spark yeah, of an idea. Yeah. Um, but I think that it also just creates a sense that this is a situation in the antebellum, bellum, postbellum South, that is specific, but it also is universal. It's like yeah. something that stretches back into, you know, biblical times. It's something about human nature that there could be this kind of putting your hopes in your sons, like not guiding your sons properly or pitting them against each other in some way that there could be this sense of like, you know, desire and possessiveness for your own sibling um, that causes you to, to act out and do wrong. I mean, these things aren't specific to the South. It's not like the South are a bunch of like inbred 
yokels who are prone to violence, you know, even by the scriptures itself shows the same kind of behavior. Well, you bring up a lot of good points. And one of the ones I wanted to kind of think about is, well, first of all, I want to talk about the letters. Um, it looks like a, a handwritten font because even on the first edition, there's this element of this novel is an epistolary novel. So much of it is told through the letters and not just, um, you know, the whole thing is a letter like the novel Frankenstein. The entire novel is actually just one really long, really long letter of Robert Walton retelling the story to his sister of what Victor has told him and what the monster told Victor, etc. But this element of, you know, is this Thomas Sutpin's uh, letter back to, you know, who, whoever, uh, Judith or, or Clyde or Rosa or, or Henry or, you know, who, who, who is writing this letter? Is this Jason Compson's letter to Quentin um, telling him that Miss Rosa has died? That, this idea of Miss Rosa has handwritten all of these uh, poems and odes to the, the dead Confederate soldiers, and and this this idea that you hand write history. It kind of feels like there's certain epistolary novels. Not even I'm gonna not use the word epistolary because that specifically implies that it's all in the form of letters, true, like something true. like like Frankenstein is, yeah, or good, good or like you know Clarissa, or just some famous British novels that function that way. Um, I'm going to compare it to something like the novel Frankenstein. Uh, not Frankenstein. Huh? We just said that. Dracula. Um, another monster story. So Dracula is composed of documents, of like a patchwork of documents, and it includes letters, but it also includes journal entries and newspaper articles and um, telegrams, I don't know, all sorts of things. Um, and it all comes together to tell a story from different perspectives. You get fragments here and fragments there. And I think that makes a lot of sense for this book as well, that it's like a, um, a pasting together of documents and then inversions and perspectives. And you know how it's like if you go to get an eyewitness account of an event that happened, even the people who are all watching the same event will have slightly different takes on it or they'll remember it slightly differently like one person will remember that the perpetrator of the crime had a beard and mustache but the other person will just think it was a mustache or something like that and I think that this to some degree reads like that like an assembly or assemblage of documents or like um, fragmentary perspectives and you're not quite sure which one to trust entirely but at the same time they all come together to form an impression yeah, and I think that this idea of, you know, what is the title alluding to? Well, it's alluding to a story of a, a violation, you know, a, a rape of a, of a half-sister by a half-brother and the resulting anger but non-action of the father and the resulting, um, you know, I guess conspiracy uh, and, and action of... Um, of the other brother, you know, the, the woman's, the Tamar's brother, Absalom. And, and then the civil war that, that, uh, breaks out because of it, because not only is Absalom not satisfied that David has not, you know, punished Amnon, he, he gets upset that David wants him punished because he gets Amnon killed. And so then he, then his beef is with David. Then David actually flees Jerusalem. And so, 
there's this element of David at the end of this whole story is not saying Tamar, Tamar, or Amnon, Amnon. He's saying Absalom, Absalom, because here is this son that has died really waging war against injustice. I mean, it's, it's like he waged war for a righteous reason, but, but the war itself corrupted him. And, and I would say the war itself did not corrupt the antebellum South. I would say that, you know, chattel slavery is what corrupted the antebellum South. But like we said the other day that the war was a fever, but it wasn't the underlying disease. Yeah. That's what, that's what the, the narrator, I don't think any characters, the narrator says early on. Yeah. And, and of course, chattel slavery specific to, you know, African born African, well, African descendants, um, you know, th- this race based slavery, uh, which is not necessarily unique to America, but is, is America certainly the most famous example of it. And um, I was just thinking about, you know, here is David lamenting the death of Absalom. And, you know, who who is Henry Sutpin lamenting the death of? Is he lamenting the death of Charles Bond? Is it Charles Bond, Charles Bond? Is he lamenting, uh, like, kind of, what have you done, like, Henry Sutpen, Henry Sutpen, what have you done? Like you, you killed, you killed this man. Now you've got to be a fugitive. You know, there's, it's not a perfect uh, fit in a way, but it's in a way it's perfect because here is David at the end of this whole story, lamenting the death of his son. And I think that the title of this novel is a lamentation because the novel is a lamentation and this idea of what's the difference between just an angry cry or, or a, um, a hopeless cry versus one that's built on not only hope but m- meaning, the, the, there's this, this element of this novel that's saying, you know, Absalom, Absalom, like, like I don't hate it. I don't hate it. There, there's, there's intention to the emphatic ending with the exclamations, and the emphatic beginning with the title and the exclamation, because here is this Absalom from another family, Quentin, right? Quentin Thompson, who is, it's like he's been tasked with being the, the Jeremiah of, of the South and lamenting the destruction of the South, you know, and he's going to get taken to Babylon, and, and you know, here he is in Babylon, <laughs> a.k.a. Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, you know, draw your own conclusions. I, I like Cambridge. They have nice bookstores, but it is cold up there, and it's, you know, it's Massachusetts. It's a different place in the South. But, um, but in terms of Quentin connecting to the title, you know, that's why I asked the question, and we'll get to that in a second, of who is uttering this this title. Is, is it just uttered from the Bible, and, and somehow it just, you know, like like um, the wind writes it on the Declaration of Independence, <laughs> like, like no no pen wrote it. It just was it was there in in the ether, and it just kind of settled in dust in the words Absalom Absalom with an exclamation point. I don't know, Whitney. Um, I have a thought about who's speaking the spirit of the title um, because I was thinking that. Thomas Sutpen would never cry out in anguish and sadness over his son in a personal manner. He would never say, oh, Henry, Henry, you know, my son, Henry, my son. 
Um, because he doesn't love Henry. He loves his plan, his design. Henry's part of the design, right? He's this legitimate heir. Yeah. But he, he doesn't love Henry in that way. In fact, he barely reacts when he hears that, that Henry is killed Charles Bond and become a fugitive. Yeah. Um, he just picks right up and tries to carry tries to on. Make another song. And replace him. And yeah. so I think there's an irony to the title, right? That it highlights the the coldness and the the satanic ambition of Thomas Upton as opposed to a man like King David, who was just as flawed but had love in his heart. And yeah. just highlights that contrast and and the lack in and I really do think, to some degree, this novel might be called a novel about the failure of fathers um, to provide true like love and compassion and guidance and support for their sons. Um, yeah. Thomas Upton certainly fails in that regard, of course, but we see Quentin being failed by his father, too. Yeah. Um, I wonder if Quentin, you know, Quentin is the person who cries out in anguish in this book. No, you know, he, yeah. he, he's the one... We see doing that. It almost makes you wonder if Quentin is calling out Absalom, Absalom, Henry, Henry, and just compassion and, and, and empathy and a sense of commiseration. You know, I just had this thought, this, this is just, you know, conspiracy theory, you know, whatever, lost message boards in 2005 level. What if Absalom, Absalom are the dying words of Quentin Compson? And it would make no sense to anyone why he would say that right before he died. But yet, what if that's his last utterance, you know? And, and, you know, we've been, uh, you know, focusing on people's last words recently with, you know, the death of George Floyd and and this idea of, like, what do you say right before you die? Um, And, and, you know, this idea of, like, suicide notes and things like that, like, what? Why would anyone say Absalom, Absalom? No one would understand it. And that's just it. As Quentin says he understands it, but then he says he doesn't understand it in re- reference to the Civil War and the South. And I think that that's part of the mystery and the intrigue of the title is it, it, it just doesn't make perfect sense. Just the same way that the, so- the South will never make perfect sense to anyone that's not from the South. It doesn't make perfect sense to anyone in the South, except it has this element of this novel points to the timelessness of the American condition because of the Civil War. If we had never had a Civil War, I do not think you could look at America through the lens of great um, historical um, you know, Aegis, you know, that, that, that era, the American era, um, which, you know, Faulkner is writing in the middle of the Great Depression. You know, he, he's writing after they kind of hit the high highs before the, before the First World War and again in the 20s, um, you know, with the Roaring Twenties. And there's this element of he's, he is equating it with a biblical counterpart to an extent that no one in the novel does. No one in the novel draws this explicit a comparison between something specific in the Bible and the South, or you know, American history in general. But I think that Faulkner is doing that in part to show the South is as worthy of inclusion in the great, you know, in the hallowed halls of literature as 
ancient Israel in the Bible or Greece and Troy in you know the the, the Iliad and the Odyssey and other Greek works or you know um, the you know the, the the English Scottish you know northern northern um, European elements of Shakespeare um, and Italy <laughs> um, and and this idea that that Faulkner is is intentionally drawing a parallel between the Bible and this story to say this feels, to quote Liam Gallagher, biblical. It feels like it has some eternal significance and it's not just another war. And, and I, I think that that's true of any person that fights in any war. You, you want to believe and, and you want to know that there was a, a higher purpose for it um, but certainly with the Civil War in, in our country especially, I think that's, that's still the question we're asking. I mean, I think America was kind of created in a moment in an intentional way with documentation and philosophical forethought in a way that not a lot of nations have ever been. And America is a good parallel to Israel in that America has had a self-conception as set apart and special and, and, and holy, right? As being about equality and freedom. And yet, at the same time, just like Israel, you know, they're special because of God, but in terms of their own choices, they're just as fallen as anyone else. Like, it's like America is special because of its ideals that it set forth, but we haven't ever lived up to the ideals, like, fully or at all in some cases. And the Civil War is just one part of how we've had to fight out that contradiction at the heart of all men are created equal, except that the person who wrote that owned slaves, like, own other men. You know, it's just there's this fundamental, like... tension and contradiction in the in the heart of America where we think of ourselves as being set apart and special and like the model for the world the way Israel did but we're yeah. so flawed and fallen at the same time like Israel was well you bring up you know you allude to someone like Thomas Jefferson who you know wrote the declaration declaration of independence and owned slaves um, you know that that's a reality and there's no way to change that reality. Um, you can't change that fact. You can't say he didn't own slaves, and you can't say he didn't write the Declaration of Independence on his own tombstone. He didn't say he wanted to be. You know, he didn't want to be remembered as president. <laughs> but you know, he 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 is a founding father of America, and this idea of Thomas Jefferson, Jefferson, Mississippi, Thomas Sutpen. I wonder if Faulkner named Thomas Sutpen such because Thomas Jefferson had such a, a, a complex history, which I think at least by the 30s people were starting to know about, um, that there was, you know, like, uh, you know, he was having, you know, children with his slaves. And, and, and I think that there's that element of Thomas Sutton's trying to be the father of a nation. He's not just trying to be the, the father of a family. He wants to start a dynasty. He wants to, he has a design, you know, and there's this idea of he, he has his own codification of his life on his tombstone and, and on the children's tombstones and his wife's tombstone, um, 
And he brings over these like very special tombstones, I think from Italy or something. Yeah, he has them in the middle of the Civil War. <laughs> he like gets them through a blockade based on his like military rank authority. Yeah. And like it says he ma- I think they're imagining this happening really uh, Quentin and and Shreve, but yeah. that he gets these wagons to drag these massive pieces of marble from like military engagement to military engagement and slows down the whole operation because of this vanity project. He has to build a monument for himself, which side note, um, Faulkner's, I think it's his great grandfather, the Colonel. Is that, Mm. is that his great, great grandfather, great grandfather -grandfather. was a Colonel in the civil war and was like a real kind of family hero, just like a real legendary type of figure. And he built a monument to himself for his, like that that towered above his tombstone, and it, he brought marble over from Italy, same type of marble. Um, I, I've I feel like Sutpen to some degree might be modeled on this this, this Colonel. Um, the more I read about him, um, just a a ruthless, ambitious man mm. who glorified himself greatly. But yeah, he. Um, arranged before he died for himself to have a an eight-foot statue of himself um, carved and erected over his tombstone. And this is a man who was the same height as Faulkner. He's like wow. five foot six or whatever. Yeah. But no, it needs to be an eight-foot statue. Because <laughs> that's his self-conception. And I think that's the same with Thomas Sutphin. Well, and there is that parallel between Sutphin has these these stones and there are like the tablets of, you know, the, the, the Ten Commandments. And, and there's this idea of he he genuinely believes he's starting this this plan and, he, you know, he can't finish it because it, it can't be finished until it's generations later. And yet, in some ways, you know, just like David has to reconcile and, and, and I guess, uh, repent again with with you know Absalom's death that it says in the toward the end of chapter 18 in second Samuel it says and the Cushite answered may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man and just think about how powerful that would be to remember this man reminding you that every person you defeat in war should end up the way your son did I mean, that it's just such a, it's such a moving and and just it it be it, it would be so hurtful to think about like every every leader you kill every soldier that's killed reminds you that your son rebelled against you because you wouldn't take you wouldn't do justice and and I think that's part of when we think about Sutpen as the antebellum South they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't relinquish their slaves they wouldn't free their slaves and so the the civil war had to happen for that to occur and and then when when you lose the chance to do it on your own terms and your own timing you lose the chance to do it with your own consequences and sure enough david had the chance to punish amnon when he you know when he raped uh, tamar but instead he just got angry about it and didn't act and then here comes absalom saying I'm not just getting angry about it. I'm doing something about it. And and there is this element in this novel that this novel is about anger and it's about grief 
And, you know, I was also thinking, what if that was like Rosa Coldfield's last words? Like, absolutely, absolutely. It, it would make about as much sense from Rosa as it would from Quentin. But in a, in a sense, it would make perfect sense because she has kept this story alive of an Absalom, Amnon, Tamar, David-style story that she's really not a principal character and she's really an observer in, but she's... She, she's kept those details alive above and beyond her own life ever moving forward because she thought it was so important for people to know in the future what the South was like. And, and the Sutpen family somehow was the encapsulation of Mississippi from 1820 to, you know, 1869 when, when Sutpen died or, or, you know, beyond that, because his, his other children were and, and grandchildren were still alive. Um, okay, Adam, what do you think of this parallel that just sort of pops into my mind? So David was not allowed to build the temple, even though he very much wanted to, um, because, you know, sin and disobedience. And because he went to war. I mean, it, yeah. it was his requirement to go to war, but he couldn't build and finish the temple because he was not he was not a king of peace. And God told him, well, your son Solomon's going to build yes. the temple, not yes. you. Um, I, I think because Sutpen is this inversion of David, he's parallel to David, but he's like an inversion to David, I think, in, in spirit in yeah. many ways. You know, the dark house, I mean, that's like a nice inversion of the temple, which is the house of Ooh. light, you know. And yeah. then... Thomas Sutpen is insisting on building this house, right? Like, yeah. and he does it, drags it out of the the mud, yeah. and you know the this only heir left to kind of like carry on this dark house is Jim Bond, and the last images we kind of see of this story are the house burning down, yeah, and. This idea on the last page is that Jim Bond is going to rise up and beget a race of kings, um, which seems to me like it could be a dark joke mm. on the um, Shreve's part. And just this idea that Suppen's brand of ambition and power will go down in flames and will not leave a lasting legacy. He doesn't build anything ultimately because... He doesn't have the, it's like he doesn't have the internal uh, tools necessary to build something that would last. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I was thinking about the dark house as the original title. First of all, the dark house makes it sound like it's a haunted house. It also makes it sound like something evil has happened there. So it's not just haunted, scary, but it's it's got a genuine evil to it. Um, the dark house, you know, this idea of skin color, you know, that, that, um, if you looked a little too tan, you know, as a white person, people would be like, I don't know, that person might be, you know, the result of race mixing. And, and in, the, in the antebellum South, that was grounds for second-class citizenship or, you know, worse. I mean, you, you could be relegated to, to slavery because, you know, your great-grandfather was was an African, you know, uh, slave or African, you know, was, was in Africa and, you know, I don't, I don't know how you get to America otherwise, but, but that sense of the, you know, just as we've been talking about with several episodes, the, the, the punishment goes down three and four and five generations. 
And I think that there's that element to the dark house, this idea of that there are all these, I mean, dark is such a powerful word because it's got, you know, light and dark and, and it's got um, dark versus like, you know, like dark in a serious way. Um, and, and the idea that, that, that it's dark, like it, that the lights are out, you know, it's not a living house anymore. It's a dead house. You know, this, there, there are just so many things that go with it. And this idea that the house divided, you know, that's, that's what they used to describe the civil war was a house divided. You know, America was this great big house that got divided because, you know, one side was Absalom, one side was Amnon, or and one side house was... house implies a family. Yeah. You know, a exactly. family divided. Or, or, you know, one side was Absalom, one side was David. And, and, and in some ways, the, the Dark House was a, was a very fitting title for this novel, but it just, it would start the reading experience and it would encapsulate the reading experience in a different color apple. It'd still be the same apple on this inside, like it's still that fruit, but it would taste differently. It would look differently, you know. It, it would, you know, appear differently, you know, uh, you know, in a, in a pie. <laughs> it's like there are all these different ways that that it would change because you just changed the title, and I think that the dark house makes the focus the place, and the south is a place. The same way that Israel is a place. But Israel is a people group. It's not the nation of Israel, you know, the, the, the latitude and longitude of, like, you know, Israel, the country right now. It's the nation of Israel, the children, you know, the, the, the generations of children that came from Abraham and Sarah's child Isaac. And so this idea of the house of Israel. It's a family. It is. It's a, a big fa- family. It's a big family. And this idea of the house of Israel, well, the dark house, there's this element of the south is a house. It's a nation. It's a, it's a, it's a giant family. And, and this element of what makes it dark, well, the fact that we had slavery, I think everyone would agree that's a, a darkness. It's not like one of the lightness elements of, of the south, but, but that's one of the things that made it dark. And, and this idea of what made that house dark well, one of the things was, <laughs> it you know, the lights went out. Like, you know, Sutpin died. The, 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 the spirit of the house went out. And sure enough, when Rosa goes, she has to go with like a flashlight and a hatchet, you know. And, and so it is a dark house. And yet when the novel ends, the house isn't dark. It's on fire. I mean, you know, that's, that's the last image of the house we get is it burning. And so, it, you know, that title would have given this sense of the dark house and then the ending would be, it's not dark anymore, it's on fire. And that, that captures how Quentin feels. He's on fire. And yet Rosa is not, you know, in some ways she's been on fire for 43 years, but in some ways she's been a dark house waiting for someone to come in and find the Henry Sutpen hidden in it. And that, you know, that's a powerful title, but it's just so unengaging, I mean, the dark house is just not engaging the way Absalom Absalom is. It sounds like it's going to be this like dead place yeah. where nothing's happening yeah. anymore. And yeah. that's the furthest from what you feel reading this book, you know, where it feels like yeah. the past is too, too virulent. It's not dead and gone yeah. Yeah. at all. 
one and and Absalom Absalom as a title you know this is a lamentation of a father to his dead son this is this is not him saying Absalom Absalom what did you do how am I gonna fix this it's he's he's saying his name after he's died it's too late to repair anything too late to repair anything and and that's I think that's what's so powerful about it is just as in the Bible David is saying this after Absalom has died this is a novel about a South that that's irreparable. I mean, even a hundred years later, 110 years later, after this novel is set, the South is not healed. I don't think it ever will heal because I just don't think it, I, I don't, I, I mean, how do you, you can't undo the, the, the sin of, of Amnon raping Tamar, you know? And, and, and then when you bring in, you know, David and, and Absalom, it's like they're both related to Tamar. I mean, they're, they're both close relations, and they're both related to Amnon. And yet there's this element of families can actually fracture people apart much more divisively than people that are not related. And, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I'm not trying to interrupt. It's hard to tell when I can jump in, but stop me if you need to. Usually at the word and, it's not the place. <laughs> no, we'll finish then. No, go ahead. Well, I read an article. I, before you moved on to another topic, I yeah, wanted yeah, to yeah. jump That's in fine. with this. Um, I read an article by Eric Sundquist. I think I refer- referred to this last time, but it's called Absalom, Absalom, and the House Divided. So, speaking of House Divided. Mm, yeah. um, but it, essentially, it's talking about how... The Southern family during the years of slavery was based on a lot of lies and hypocrisy because I already mentioned this concept of having half-siblings, like serving in the house and pretending they weren't half-siblings and just keeping this veneer of like ignorance and respectability up so that the whole house needs to be kind of built on a lie. Um, in fact, they, the article includes a quotation from Mary Chestnut, who wrote this diary um, from the Civil War years. It's pretty famous. Um, but she says, God forgive us. Ours is a monstrous system and mm-hmm. wrong. Perhaps the rest of the world is as bad. This only I see. Like the patriarchs of old. This makes you think of David. Yep. Like the patriarchs of old, our men live all in one house with their wives and their concubines. And the mulattoes one sees in every family exactly resemble the white children. And every lady tells you who the father is of all the mulatto children in everybody else's household. But those in her own, she seems to think, drop from the clouds or pretends to think so. There's this sense of, I think, that kind of encapsulates both the dark house and the Absalom Absalom titles. This sense that the, the family itself in the South, the families of these planters, um, the... The planters and their their wives like to think of themselves in this paternalistic, maternalistic way with the slaves. Like, yeah. oh, we're like parent figures to them, and they need guidance, and that's why we're doing this. And, you know, that's a way to make yourself feel better about the whole situation and kind of explain it to yourself morally. Yeah. Um, but between that kind of friendly lie... And then yeah. the lies they had to tell themselves about whose children are these children who are running around the house and look conspicuously like 
you know, my husband. Yeah. Um, it creates a real darkness in the family. Yeah. Um, and it creates a sense, just like in David's family, I think, of things being swept under the rug and there being anger that can't be spoken. Yeah. Things like that. Well, you bring up the phrase built on a lie, and, and I think that that's, you know, that's really what what we're coming to terms with now. Again, I mean, it's, we've been coming to terms with it ever since the Civil War, but the South, the antebellum South, the Confederacy was built on a lie. It was built on the lie that white people are superior to black people. White people are better than black people. White people are more valuable than black people. And, you know, that, that's a lie. That's just not true. People are equal because God creates all people. Now, why do we know that? Because the Bible tells us that. And the problem with the South is the Bible was used, you know, in, in a very awful way to justify things that are unjustifiable. And, and the Bible's been used to do that in all eras because people will take something out of context. They will take one verse or one passage or whatever, and isn't that exactly what's happening with this title? It's, it's just a little blip. It's not even direct word for word out of the Bible, although maybe, maybe Faulkner's translation ha- had Absalom, Absalom together. But I think that that's what's so powerful about this, this title is it's, you know, here in, in a title, it's, it's a, uh, a microcosm of what the South did to justify itself all along, which was to say, God's okay with this, and here's why. And, and you know, this idea of referring to the Bible is, is intentional. Like, he could have used a Shakespearean title, like The Sound and the Fury. He could have used a Greek, uh, you know, ancient Greek title, like As I Lay Dying. I mean, he, you know, Faulkner has some great titles for his novels, but I think this one is a maybe the best one, you know, uh, to be a title supremacist. Um, but you know, I think that this idea of taking something out of the Bible and trying to understand the world through one little chip of it is very limiting, and it can be very destructive. And sure enough, this novel is about destruction. It's not about. Uh, building and success and you know beauty and flourishing. It's about a little bit of that and then all of the destruction that comes because Thomas Sutpen wasn't faithful to, I guess, his own, his own calling. Like if he, if he had stayed in Haiti and just become, you know, a successful man in Haiti, maybe, maybe he would have gotten his, his desire, his, his design, excuse me, Maybe that would have come true in Haiti had he not abandoned the wife. Now, I'm not saying that like him having slaves in Haiti is any better than him having slaves in America, but in terms of his the success of his design, it fails. And I think he didn't want to just yeah. look like his design was succeeding. Ooh, like interesting because I think his wife and his child could have passed for white yeah. without any problem. Yeah. Probably he wanted there to be like a purity in his own mind to yeah. it. Yeah. Which is just different. He wanted to be above reproach for his own code. And, you know, that's the thing is the South wrote its own code and used, you know, used some language from the Bible to, to justify it. But but ultimately it was a faulty code and it and it fell. 
um, just as the house of Sutpen falls and, and the house, you know, the dark house. Um, and, and here is David in the, in the old Testament, in the Bible, just, just screaming in agony, his, his dead son's name, you know, and, and just, absolutely and, and I think it's powerful that he's not saying Amnon Amnon he's not saying Tamar Tamar because Tamar's still alive and sure enough Absalom names his daughter Tamar and it says she was very beautiful and so there's this element of like is it is it going to happen again you know like is it is it is there some sort of force of of destiny that that like even though the, the principal players are all dead or, or not, in, you know, not on the playing field anymore, that the next generation or the generations much thereafter will replay the same thing. And I think that's, that's what America still contends with now is, well, when's the next civil war going to happen? And I think that that's, that's partially because the civil war wasn't really a definitive um, end to anything. And if anything, it was the beginning of something. And, you know, you might say America began then and, and that we're still trying to define it now and determine it now. And that's part of what makes living in America such a dynamic life. You know, it is not boring to live in America. If you're bored living in America, it's because you're not paying attention. But it, it, it's just so, it can be so heavy to live in America because we have such haunting ghosts. And here is David, you know, saying his dead son's name, who is now a ghost, you know, who's going to haunt him with every victory he has in military. He's going to be reminded of what this Cushite has said. Well, let, let all your enemies be like this, you know, this young man that, that you know, rose up against you. And, and you know, maybe that's, maybe that's our cross to bear as a country, is like every war we've been in ever after, has reminded us of the Civil War for better or for worse. And, you know, maybe we need to repent of, of going to war with one another. Not to say that we shouldn't, like, like we should uh, invalidate the results or something like that, but to say that has this country repented of going to war with each other? No, not, not in 150 years. And, you know, I, I think about this title, and it, it's such a, it's such a, just a powerful book. It, it, it really is. Uh, very moving to read uh, and very difficult, but I think the title in two words, and you know, like Whitney said, it's the same word twice. That's just it. History is never the same twice through two people's eyes, minds, books, etc. One of them ends in a comma, one of them ends in an exclamation point, and yet it's the same word. And it's like you can look at the same picture and see two different things. You can look at the world right now and see two different, you know, um, two different things happening. Some people would be like, oh, it's, the world's just getting worse and worse. And some people would be like, gosh, the world's better today than it was yesterday. Um, and and that's, that's why I think Faulkner said this was the best, yet, best novel yet written by an American because <laughs> it kind of is. Uh, and we'll talk about why. <laughs> in a a forthcoming episode. Um, But, you know, in terms of this title, I I was always intrigued by this novel. Ever since the first time I heard the title, I thought, that's an interesting title. I wonder why Faulkner used that. And I think I knew it was from the Bible, but I didn't know the context. And even though in the context, I I don't think it explains the novel. I think it helps contextualize the novel. And that's why I think 
you know, this idea of who is saying it. Is it Faulkner? Is it, you know, one of the characters? Is it um, history speaking from the past and, and somehow giving it to the, the, the cover without Faulkner even purposefully doing it? Obviously, he chose it. Let's not kill ourselves. He did choose the title. But, you know, as we end on the discussion of the title, Whitney, what are your, you know, what's your vision for the title now versus, you know, the first time you read this novel? Do, do, you, do you feel like this is a, a perfect title for this novel? Why or why not? Um, I, like, I like how mysterious it is. Um, yep. As opposed to, say, The Dark House, you know, which is... Um, Leads you to too vague. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it leads it leads you to understand what to expect to some degree, whereas I don't think the Absalom Absalom does lead you to understand what to expect. But um, I think that's that's fitting, you know, for a book that just doesn't proceed in a straightforward, linear, orderly fashion. So um, the fact that it's very elusive to something in the very distant past like reaching back really far makes sense to me like this connectedness of the like the the struggles of humanity the things that human beings strive for and care about over like the whole stretch of time um it does contextualize america with israel in some ways that i probably had not thought about until we started hashing this out today um, yeah, I mean, I, I really like it more than a more straightforward title um, because it has this sense of, like, mystery and um, connection with, like, the vast scope of human time and human, like, I don't, I don't want to call it myth because you know that I don't believe the Bible is myth, but almost like human um, meaning-making well, and the Bible is a history book, and this this is another history book. And I think there's some elements to the Bible that people really, you know, uh, jive with. They're like, oh, yeah, Israel, that's a real place. Like, I can put my finger on that. But yet some people are like, I don't know, Jesus Christ, I don't know if, I don't know if that's real or not. And, and that's why I think Thomas Sutpen is named Thomas in addition to the reference to Thomas Jefferson. I think Thomas Sutpen is the kind of guy that has to put his hand in the wound. <laughs> Interesting. And um, He doesn't trust anyone but himself yeah, or something. It's like he, if he doesn't see it with his own eyes, it didn't happen. Um, you know, the Gospels themselves, they're four accounts of Christ's life. Yeah. In the way, same way that you've got different people's accounts yeah, of you've got Thomas four Sutpen's narrators life. Telling Sutpen's life. Some people use that as a real... Um, kind of reason to um ignore the historical authenticity of the of the gospels they say well you know you've got these four different stories and they 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 seem different from each other but they're supposed to be the same information but that's how history works like i said like you can have people in the same situation reporting on what they've seen and they see it differently and none of them are lying yeah so i think to me, it actually adds this veracity and, like, uh, just kind of, you know, truth, genuineness, truthfulness or something to the to the Gospels. But it's very much like even a scriptural 
um, way to approach telling the story of history is to give yeah. different people's perspective with different emphases. Yeah, and, and that's why it connects yet again to portraiture. This is a, a novel that's, you know, Faulkner's own you know, concession about the novel is it was a man about, <laughs> it's a novel uh, about a man who wanted sons and the sons destroyed him. And I mean, boom, that's Absalom. Absalom. That's, what, that's what happens to David right there. Now, David isn't literally destroyed, um, but I think he is, he's emotionally destroyed by this situation, um, which I said is the, is, is the, the, the consequence of his sin with Bathsheba and, and his murder of, of Uriah. And so here is this, this man, you know, who, Thomas Upton, who has to come home from the Civil War to find out that his son has killed his other son. And it, it's, it's so heavy, but yet I think it's so significant because here Faulkner has tried to create a family that is indicative of the South uh, in such a vivid way, but it's only vivid to Faulkner. Like, it's to me, I read Thomas Upton, it's very hard for me to believe, and that, that helps me to sympathize with people that have you know, a hard time believing Jesus is real. It's like, well, you've got four accounts of him. Doesn't, doesn't that help? And for some people, that, they think that that's, that's a limitation because, oh, well, if it was one definitive account, it would be more believable. And the thing is, is you've got eyewitnesses. And, you know, in this novel, you've got eyewitnesses and you've got people interviewing those eyewitnesses or, or recounting the stories of those eyewitnesses. And that's part of what makes history so compelling is that it's the stories of people, and it's not invented by AI or something. You know, this is not something that s- someone, you know, received an alien, you know, transmission to, to, to brainwash people to believe. It's like, this is, these are real human beings that, you, that are your ancestors and are my ancestors, and, you know, we can choose to give it the dignity that it deserves, or we can choose not to, but it was written, it was lived, it happened, and you can choose to let it govern you, or you can choose to let it not govern you, but to deny it, I think, is, is you know, Quentin can't deny the past. He can't deny the South. He can't deny the Confederacy, the Civil War, being a Compson, knowing, you know, having the, the Sutton family be kind of like the, 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 the cautionary tale of Jefferson, Mississippi, etc. Um, and yet, he doesn't let it empower him. He lets it uh, basically drown him. Um, and I think he drowns himself because that's the, the fate he was already living, you know. And, and, and so, you know, just as Absalom dies, you know, caught by the locks of his hair in the tree. Well, he doesn't die by that way. He gets caught in the tree and they kill him up there. But, but there's this element of he's stuck the same way that Quentin is stuck. And I think that, um, you know, Maybe Jason Compson would say, Quentin, Quentin. You know, may, maybe there's this element of, like, once Quentin dies, maybe his father will see that, you know, he was pushing him too hard to, to, to be a nihilist or he was pushing him too hard to, to value the history of the family or, or the, you know, the, the, the area and, and the South. And, and that's why I think, you know, this, this title is such a, a powerful title, maybe a perfect title, uh, but certainly a title of a book that deserves consideration for the greatest American novel, which 
we'll talk about it in a future episode. So I think next episode we're going to talk, we're going to back it off of the content and talk about the style. Uh, so just in case you've had enough talking about Thomas Sutpin at all, uh, we're going to talk about how this novel is told from a sentence perspective, because as we've said, one of the longest sentences ever in literature is in this novel, 1,288 words. And uh, we're just going to talk about the sentences and maybe some about the structure as well, because I think that's part of uh, what makes this such a compelling novel is it's not linear. Um, and and um, some people love linear stories. I love them. But sometimes you need something that just kind of hops around a little bit, uh, and we'll talk about that uh, in the next episode. So we, we've enjoyed talking about the title today. Uh, and we'll talk about the style next time, and then we'll close it up with, uh, I guess, trying to answer the question, is this the greatest American novel that, out of the ones we've read? Uh, why, why not? So uh, we look forward to, list, uh, to talking with you again uh, with Summer Reading with the Deals next time. Bye-bye.